we continue worship this morning uh, by looking to God's word and the, the, the God, the one true God, the, the living God, the almighty God that we've been singing about, we look at, we find in the scriptures and uh, we can find him in uh, Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6 to 28 this morning and uh, do the length of the sermon, the text, I'll, I'll read this text within the, the sermon this morning, Isaiah 44. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that we can find and discover and learn about you in this book. Lord, even though all creation testifies to your power and your wisdom and your existence in our world, it is in this book this word in which you supernaturally spoke to the prophets of old, providentially ordained that as they wrote it down and was copied by the scribes over the centuries, then passed on and brought into print, bound up in these books, even digitized into ones and zeros on our phones and pads. Lord, no matter the form, we have here, Lord, a revelation from you, your truths, your revelation, what we need, what we need to hear, what we need to live. Uh, We thank you that your word speaks to us, Lord, shows us who our creator, who our God is. As we look to the text this morning, we pray that you would show us that you are the true and living God, the only God, that there is none besides you. Help us to not only understand that intellectually, but help us, Lord, practically to experience and live that out in our daily lives, that it would give us hope and encouragement, strength, in all that we face in this world. Lord, we pray your spirit would fill us into your teacher again. Be glorified in the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <clears throat> well, this book uh, that is, we are looking at this morning is a book that tells us many things. One of the more essential things that the Bible tells us is that the Bible tells us that we are all sinners. I hope that's not an offense to you in any way. If you've been in this church a while, you know that uh, that's something that the Bible teaches. Romans 3.23, for instance, tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we sin because we are sinners. It's not that we are sinners because we sin. That's true in some way. But we are first and foremost sinners by nature born with the sinful nature, affected by the the curse of sin in our forefathers, that we sin. And sometimes we can get familiar with sin, that we sort of even take our sins for granted. A few years back, Jerry Bridges wrote a book called Respectable Sins and and even lists the very sins that we kind of think, oh, that's okay, that's okay. Uh, We sort of excuse. But when we think about the sins in our life, I'd like to ask a question. 
What do you think is the worst sin of all? You could probably follow the news recently and you'd find that everybody's pretty upset about the sexual assault of one Hollywood producer. Many people are up in arms, and rightly so, I would say. Uh, that seems pretty wicked, what that particular individual and probably many others in power have done throughout the ages. Is that the worst sin? Maybe the worst sin is murder, the, the ending of a life, whether we talk about a, a life that is born or a life that's not yet born, murdered all the same. Is it perhaps racism? Uh, many people are up in arms against the white supremacists and the, that are kind of in, uh, having a voice in our world today. Perhaps it's some of the sins that uh, have become, uh, we've become aware of more in recent days, recent years, that is, like human trafficking. Or is it child abuse? All these sins are terrible. We could add to that list all the sins that uh, we commit from time to time. Is it pride? Is it uh, arrogance? Is it, uh, is it a lust? You know, the Bible does not give us an explicit verse and say, well, here is the worst sin of all. So we don't need to be dogmatic about what answer you give. But I've asked the question because I want to just think about what do you think? If there's a one sin that could, you know, summarize all the sins, or if there's one sin that is on the top of the list of, of a God, we're going to make a list of so, what would be that list that would say this is the worst sin of all? I would propose to you that that worst sin is idolatry. I think we can make an argument from the scriptures that idolatry is the worst sin of all. To worship anything other than God alone is idolatry. To love anything else more than God is idolatry. To find joy in anything else more than God is idolatry. To look to anyone for hope or for an answer before God is idolatry. Idolatry is forbidden by the very first two commandments of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. Those commandments are, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself an idol to worship or serve. In fact, in Exodus chapter 20, verses 5 and 6, there it equates idolatry with actually with hating God. And therefore, the parallel is that with those of us who worship God are to love God. To practice idolatry is really to a violation of what Jesus calls the great commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. Idolatry essentially puts something else or someone else before God. It, idolatry gives glory that belongs to God to someone else. It robs God of his glory that he deserves. Whereas maybe when we read the Bible or we think of idols, we primarily perceive them as objects of wood, stone, or metal. Idols really can be anything that we want more than God himself. And the sad truth is that we are all guilty of idolatry from time to time. We have all put something or someone else before our Lord. We've all looked to something or someone else before our Lord. In today's passage, 
we will, will cause us to examine our own hearts. And I, I want us to think of idolatry, not just, well, I don't worship any uh, idol in my home. I don't have, a, I'm not into ancestral worship. You know, I don't light the incense. You know, that's how it used to be for me when I was a young, Christ, young Christian. My parents had the uh, ancestors up there and they would offer fruits and incense. And maybe we don't check that off anymore. Maybe we're beyond that. But that doesn't mean that we don't have idolatry in our hearts. And I've, uh, <laughs> I pray that this text would encourage you and challenge you as it has challenged me. It teaches us that there is no other God besides our Lord. And it shows us the, the foolishness of idolatry. Sometimes we might think of how foolish the Israelites were to fall into the sin of idolatry, right? How could they do that? They've seen God. They know God. God's their God. How could they then worship that, that idol or that God or that, that, uh, uh, that nation's uh, God? How could they turn to the idols of the surrounding nations? You see, idolatry was, just, was not just the practice of a backwards, primitive people. Sometimes we think of that. We think, oh, idols, that's, that's, that's what the backwards, primitive people, they, that's what they worship. But in those days, in Israel's days, idolatry was the practice of the mightiest nations of the earth. It was what the United States and Russia and China do. It was what the, the nations that everyone else looks to did. The Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, all attributed their power, all their attributed their might to their gods, their idols. So how could tiny Israel, who was always under the, seemingly under the thumb of one of these nations, continued to claim that their God, the Lord, Yahweh, was supreme and that all the gods of the mighty empires were false. How could they not resist to worship the gods of the mighty nations? How could they not want to follow after because they wanted to be like Egypt and Assyria and Babylon? And so hopefully we can understand a little bit of why they worshiped the idols of their surrounding nations. In writing to oft-idolatrous Israelites, having affirmed his love for them despite their transgressions, God reminds Israel, here in 44, verse 6 through 28, that he alone is God, and they can trust in him. As we look at an outline for us this morning, we're going to find this passage can divide into three reasons, three reasons to turn away from idolatry. And trust in God alone. Three reasons. Let's take a look at these reasons. The first reason can be seen in God's words to Israel in verses 6 to 8. So in verse 6 to 8, you can look at there, verse 6 to 8 with me. I'll read it for us. We see the supremacy of God. The supremacy of God is the reason for why we should not turn to anybody into idols, but we should always turn to God because God is supreme. Let's look at the verse 6. And following, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation, and let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? Or is there any other rock? I know of none. 
these three verses, we see that there's an overall theme of God's supremacy. That there is basically no one that compares to him. There's no one that's like him. He reminds Israel, first in verse 6, of their relationship with him. He recalls to them by with the various titles, these rich and wonderful titles in verse 6, that he is their king. He's their Lord, their master, their God. He's their redeemer. He's the one who's rescued them. He's chosen them. He's made them from a single man, Abraham, into a mighty nation. He's redeemed them. He brought them 70 down into Egypt and then brought them out a great nation through Moses. He reminds them of his character in this, in this text. He is the almighty Lord of hosts. That, he's, that he has the host of evangelic armies behind his back. He's the eternal God, the first and the last, that he's been there at the beginning and he will be there at the end. He concludes verse 6 with a clear statement of fact that there is no God besides me. God makes clear here, despite what the world believes in that day and despite what the world may believe today, that there are many gods or if some today think there are no gods, God clarifies very, uh, in a very simply and, un, and, and uh, way that there is only one God, and he is that God. And furthermore, if there was anyone who would claim to be God, like, like the idols of the nations, then God challenges them to reveal uh, the past, explain to him the past, or be revealed to him the future. For God himself has done that, himself. He throughout, repeatedly throughout Israel's history revealed to them what he would do. He would tell them through the prophets and then they proceeded to accomplish it. The fulfillment of God's prophecies in the Bible, I mean, there are numerous, is one of the most compelling evidences for his supremacy, for the truthfulness of the scriptures even is a confirmation that this book is the book that is written by a divine God who truly is and who brings things to pass. Israel, as a nation, would have remembered the many times that God fulfilled his promises to them. In light of that, God encourages Israel to not be afraid, he says. Do not be afraid. Do not fear. Yes, he had only uh, in the early parts of, the, of Isaiah, he had promised that they were going to be taken into captivity. They're going to be conquered, defeated. An army nation is going to come at their doors and burn their city down and take all of them into captivity, leaving just a handful of the poor and impoverished. Then they would be slaves for 70 years, serving another nation, serving the gods even of those nations. But God promises them here. He promises to deliver them. God has promised to wipe out their transgressions. He's not only their God and that they are his witnesses, but he is the only God, he says. No other God's gonna hear them when they cry. No other rock will be a refuge for them when they, when they look to for protection. He alone is God. And this God is our God. There is no other God. There's no other person that we can cry to who will hear our prayers. There's no other rock in this world. No other person, no other thing that we can run to and find refuge. He alone is that God. When you and I remember that there is no other God than our God, 
that becomes reason for us. It becomes an impetus for us to, to love and trust him always. Why would we love anything else more than God? Why would we trust anything else more than God? For to do so, when we do that, we're saying that something else is greater than God. And it makes no sense when we say that, right? It's like, it makes no sense, but yet, we sometimes do that. It's like we get amnesia or something. We forgot who we are. We forgot who our God is. Remember, point number one, reason number one, God is supreme. The supremacy of God. That's why we turn away from idols and we turn and trust in him. That leads us to reason number two. Reason number two is found in verses 9 through 20. And when you look in your Bibles at verses 9 to 20, you notice something kind of different as far as the, the writing of, this, of these verses. You notice that they're written in what's called prose. Most of Isaiah is written in poetry, right? They, they've got those uh, fancy lines and stuff like that. There's, uh, this, it seems to be uh, poetry. But in verse 9 to 20, Isaiah returns to a common, ordinary speech. He's just writing a, a, like a narrative, description the switch to ordinary writing communicates that what follows is not a prophecy. It's not something that he's prophesying that's going to happen in the future. But rather, it is a factual description of reality. It's a factual description of reality. What is real? What's true? It's just described. Just like Isaiah 36, uh, 36, 37, 38, 39, where we looked at the descriptions of what happened in the days of Hezekiah, were written in prose. It's just a simple description of that which took place. This is a description of reality, of facts. And in these verses, God gives a second reason to turn away from idols and trust in him. And that we find, and he spends a lot of time here, in fact, and we find that this reason is the futility of idols. God makes very clear <laughs> in no unclear terms that when you trust in idols, you are trusting in futility. It is a useless, meaningless, vapor kind of a trust. God reveals that idol worship is foolish. It is unprofitable. And we find here in, in these verses 9 to 20, four realities about idolaters, about those who would worship idols, those who would make idols. In verse 9 to 11, we learn first that idolaters will be put to shame. Look at verse 9 to 11 with me. Those who fashion a graven image are all of them futile, and their precious things are of no profit. Even their own witnesses fail to see or know, so they will be put to shame. Who has fashioned a god or cast an idol to no profit? Behold, all his companions will be put to shame, for the craftsmen themselves are mere men. Let them all assemble, let them all assemble themselves. Let them stand up, let them tremble, and let them together be put to shame." Three times in, this ver- in these three verses, we find the, fer- the, the verb put to shame. You see it in there in verse 9, that those who fashion graven images on them, they will be put to shame. Verse 11, we find it twice. Their companions will be put to shame. And then at the end of verse 11, all of them together will be put to shame. This is, the, this is what happens to those who put their trust in idols. You will be put to shame. You depend upon idols. You count on idols. You look to idols. You look to these things. And you will be, in the end, you will be put to shame. You will find that they are not God. They cannot be a replacement for God, though we look to them as such. 
The idols would become a source of shame for these people. Why? Because the idols are futile and are of no profit. The word futile means meaningless. It means empty. Idols are empty. When you worship an idol, there's nothing behind it. We kind of think, and we think, oh, there's an idol. There's a, there's a great being behind that idol. No, that's just an empty idol. There's nothing behind it. There's no power in these things that we call, that we worship as idols. One may believe that worship them is, worshiping them is a source of blessing or a source of power, but it's an empty hope. And the same can be said of our own idols, things that we worship more than God. We make idols of other people, don't we? We make idols of our jobs. We make idols of our material possessions and so forth. But in every case, we will find that the joy that we hope to find in them is empty. It's not that there is no joy in those things. There is certainly joy. We can make our, even the things that are good, like our spouses or our children are idols. We can make our, our fine jobs an idol. We can make the things that we possess, whether it's our computers or laptops or, or, uh, or clothing, an idols. And we find joy in them, but when we look to them as the source of joy, instead of God, we will find them empty in due time. Only when we rightly understand that these things that are in our lives, the people in our lives, our spouses, our children, our jobs, our, our stuff, are all gifts from God, all meant to point to God, that when we find joy in them, we realize that this is a joy from the Lord, then that is rightly understood. At the end of verse 11, a reason is given for the futility of the idols is that they are crafted by mere men. That they're just simply the works of man. And this is elaborated in verse 12 to 14. A second thing, a second reality about idolaters is that idolaters worship a product of man. They worship a product of man. We're worshiping the things that we make. Has anyone want to just make something and then worship it? You know, I can fold this a little piece of paper into an airplane and say, oh, this is my God. That sounds foolish, but that is the essence of. Well, that's the reality of idolatry. Look at verse 12 to 14. The man shapes iron into a cutting tool and does his work over the coals, fashioning it with hammers and working it with his strong arm. He also gets hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and becomes weary. Another shapes wood. He extends a measuring line. He outlines it with red chalk. He works it with planes and outlines it with a compass. It makes it like the form of a man, like the beauty of man, so that it may sit in a house. Surely he cuts cedars for himself and takes a cypress or an oak and raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir and the rain makes it grow. We learn here that an idol, made of, whether made of iron or made of wood or maybe made of both, are completely dependent upon the man for its existence. It needs man to make it. In verse 12, the idols are the product of blacksmiths, we've learned. The blacksmith has to work and hammer the metals over hot coals. It requires him to be strong because he has to hammer it over and over. It requires the strength of man to build this idol. But like all men, the blacksmith himself will at one point run out of strength. He'll grow tired. He'll grow hungry. He'll get thirsty and his strength will fail. Verse 13, the idols are also dependent upon the, the hands of carpenters. The carpenters measures and they, um, outlines the wood. They, they, sh- they shave the wood with their planes. They, they design it. They, they use a compass to make sure that it's level so that it can stand or it can sit in a house. Verse 14, the idols we find are also the product or dependent upon foresters. 
The forester must select the right tree to cut down for his idol. There's just a mention of all sorts of different trees. It doesn't really matter which tree he cuts, but he chooses from all these different trees and he makes one into his idol. But even before that, the latter part of verse 14 says that he, he is the one who planted the tree. The tree that is used to make an idol was planted by man so that it could grow into be a big giant tree so that then he could cut it down and then he can give it to the, the carpenter who could just shave it and then give it to the, uh, the, uh, the blacksmith who could wrap it with an iron so they could call it their God. All of these, all of these workers an idol depends upon to be for its existence. It depends upon man, the strength of man, the wisdom of man, the will of man to, for it to come into existence. And if it depends upon these things, if it depends upon man, then it surely can be no greater than man. It is simply a creation of man, made in his image even, only as strong as man. And that's not very strong. Now, someone at this point might add that we, even many of us may think today or, uh, of idols. That, that, that may be true, the idol, the, the idol itself. But aren't these idols simply a representation of more powerful divine beings behind them? That's really what's powerful. That's really what, you know, is. So to mock the piece of metal, the piece of wood, that's really, it's like a, it's a straw man argument, you know? But first of all, why, the, why this is a legitimate point is that presuming that there are actually divine beings behind these pieces of wood or stone or, is to presume a truth that is not. We don't want to presume that there are divine beings behind it. That's, that goes contrary to what the scriptures teach. The, God has revealed in his word that there is no other God besides him. There's only one triune God. There are no other gods. There's only one. And so, first of all, to, you know, when you, when, you, uh, when you have to start presuming something that's not true, that's going to lead to some false, faulty logic at some point. But secondly, even if it were so, if we granted that it was so, that yes, okay, maybe perhaps there are some divine beings that are actually behind that piece of wood or that piece of stone, then why do these divine beings need man to make a representation of them? Why do they need man to make, make an idol of them? Why can't they, if they are all-powerful, why don't they create their own representation? Why don't they just make something come out of the fire and say, oh, this is it. This is my representation. Why didn't they show up as a burning bush that does not burn up? Why don't they show up as a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire? Why don't they show up like the angel of the Lord? Why don't they show up as God in the flesh? They do not because they cannot because they are not. The mention of trees in verse 14 leads us to the next reality about idolaters. Idolaters who not only worship a product of man, but idolaters worship a part of creation. They worship a part of creation. Verses 15 to 17. Then it becomes the, that, that wood, that, the, uh, that tree that the, uh, the forester cut down, then it becomes something for a man to burn. So he takes one of them and warms himself. He also makes a fire to bake bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes it a graven image and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire, and over this half he eats meat as he roasts a roast and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Aha, I'm warm, and I have seen the fire. But the rest of it 
He makes it into a god, his graven image. He falls down before it and worships. He also prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. The irony and satire in this section is quite powerful. Uh, From the same tree that is cut down by man, part of it he uses to burn and warm himself and to bake bread with. So that's what wood is useful for, right? When you have wood, you can burn it and it keeps you warm. It's like at a campfire. He's cooking his roast. That's like nice. He's making good barbecue pork, uh, known as Jewish, barbecue (laughs) sheep. I mean, and... I was thinking what I just had not too long ago. Uh, I just edit that out. Anyways. And then from after having done that, he takes the other part, the remaining part, not even the other half, but what remains of the wood, the leftover part, and it says he makes it into his idol. And he prays to this piece of wood. He bows down to this piece of wood. How sad it is that man worships and calls for deliverance a piece of wood that he could have just as easily burnt for warmth or food. This is the height of foolishness. How can we call a tree, a piece of metal, a rock, or anything else in creation our God? Idolaters have it all upside down. God made creation to serve man, not for man to serve creation. God made man to worship their creator not the creation. Yet that is what idolatry does. That's what idolaters do. Paul in Romans chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, describes this folly. That is when people who worship idols professing to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Man would thought they were so wise that they were, but they started making images and they're calling those images, those images based upon creation, and started worshiping them. Idolaters are completely corrupted by sin in that they worship a part of creation. They're getting it all upside down, all wrong. And then yet, when we think about it for ourselves, anytime we value something, anytime we love something, anytime we trust in something or someone more than God, we have it also upside down. We also have it all wrong. We become fools because we're saying that something in creation is greater than the creator. What makes this all worse is the fourth lesson that in reality, idolaters are blind to their deception. We're blind to deception when we practice idolatry. Verse 18 to 20, they do not know nor do they understand For he has smeared over their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot comprehend. No one recalls, nor is there knowledge or understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire, and also have baked bread over its coals. I roast meat and eat it. Then I make the rest of it into an abomination. I fall down before a block of wood. He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside. And he cannot deliver himself, nor say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? See, idolaters are blind to the truth. When we worship idols, when we turn to idols, we're we're actually revealing that we're blinded. Our own choice, because of our own choice to reject God and worship creation, that makes us blind. But according to verse 18 that we just read, God himself also in judgment caused them to not be able to see the truth. 
that he withholds the revelation of truth to them. They are blind to the obvious truth that the essence of their idolatry is simply the worship of a block of wood. They can't see that. Yet that's what it really is. They're worshiping something that's of empty, futile. But they cannot see it. Verse 20 describes the idolater as simply as feeding on ashes. This is how, uh, how blind he is. When you, when they, as they look to their God to, to give them what they need, to provide for them their food, provide for them strength, provide for them uh, wisdom, what in reality is that their, their God is not feeding them. They're feeding on actually ashes. He is, so, he is so deceived that he can't even free himself from his deception. Nor does he realize that what he has in his right hand, that's the hand of strength, that's what his source of power is. He says, my source of power is this God, but I don't realize that it's a lie. That's how deceived they are when we worship idols. Idolatrous man desperately needs God to reveal the truth to him. He cannot see it. He will not see it. So when, you, when we practice idolatry, we're all blinded to it. To be, and to be an idolater is to be a fool, according to the Bible. For the fool has said in his heart that there is no God. And when we worship anyone or anything else but God, we are in essence denying his existence. We're saying that he's not almighty, not all-knowing, not holy, not loving. When we deny God, we deny he who defines all reality for you and me. We end up living in a world that is a fairy tale world because we've gotten the basis wrong. When we live in a world that we believe that God doesn't exist, we have to explain a world without God. And we start saying things. So, oh, well, perhaps aliens came here at some point and implanted something here on this world so that we can come into existence. So let's, and we, we talk about how we, can, we reject God, so we reject the fact that we are created. We have to come up with a, another theory, and the, our man's best theory at this point is evolution. It's simply by chance mutations over billions of years we came to be. So when we reject the reality of God, when we reject that he is God and he alone, we end up becoming fools. We are because, and it shows that we're just simply blind. And what we desperately need is God. We need him to reveal himself to us. And this leads to the third and final reason to turn from idolatry and trust in God. That is that God does in, reveal himself to us. And he reveals himself to us through his promises, through his word. We find the third encouragement, the third reason to turn from idolatry and trust in God is the certainty of Israel's hope or the certainty of God's promises. God assures Israel of his promises that he made to them here in verse 21 through 28. Verse 21 through 23, we read, Remember these things, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Shout for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout joyfully, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into a shout of joy, you mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob, and in Israel he shows forth his glory. 
several instructions here that he gives to Israel. But the, first, the primary instruction is he calls Israel to remember. Remember their relationship with them. Remember these things, he says. Remember that they are his servant. Remember that he is their creator and their lord, their king. And because of that relationship, he will never, ever forget them. They may forget him, but he will never forget them. He also calls them to remember how he wiped away all their transgressions, verse 22. Despite the heaviness of their sins, like mist, despite that it was basically, you know how mist is? You can't avoid it. You can't like try to avoid it. Once you walk through mist, you're just simply completely covered in it. It's a heavy mist. You're, you're, you're wet and you're soaked by that water. That's how sin is. You can't just avoid it. It's everywhere. Their sins are so great that it completely covers them. And he calls them, said, because he wipes out their transgressions, he calls them to return to him, to repent, is what he calls them to do. He calls them to repent, to return to him, because he has redeemed them. The use of the redeemed here, I think in our last sermon, we mentioned how oftentimes it's used of basically Israel's deliverance, redemption out of Egypt. But here, it's one of those times where we find that it's in reference to sin because just the immediate context of these verses. They hear the, the reference of the, of the forgiveness of their sins tells us that this redemption that God is talking about is that his, the redemption from sin, a redemption that would ultimately be based upon the death of their Messiah that we learn about in Isaiah, we will learn about in Isaiah 53. And as they repent, remember, and as they repent and return, then God calls them to worship, to shout for joy. To all, and it seems to be a description that all creation is one day going to praise God. That day will probably be in the millennial kingdom, a reference here. But one day, all creation will worship him. And so he calls Israel to join in that praise and that worship, to shout for joy. So while God promised to forgive and redeem Israel in verse 21 to 23 of their sin, he promises also to restore captive Israel to the promised land in verses 24 to 28. Verse 24 to 28, we read, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and the one who formed you from the womb, I, the Lord, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone causing the omens of boasters to fail, making fools out of diviners, causing wise men to draw back and turning their knowledge into foolishness, confirming the word of his servant and performing the purpose of his messengers. It is I who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. And of the cities of Judah, they shall be built. And I will raise up her ruins again. It is I who says to the depth of the sea, be dried up, and I will make your rivers dry. It is I who says of, of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. And he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built. And of the temple, your foundation will be laid. This, these words, probably when read by the Israelites of Isaiah's day, uh, would have seemed a little odd. So they would have thought, well... Jerusalem's standing right here. You just delivered us from Sennacherib. And so, uh, and then to talk about uh, the rebuilding of the, of the temple, the temple's still standing here. They had no concept that this temple was going to be destroyed, even though God told them that he's going to destroy Jerusalem. But you can imagine these words read later on, about 150 years later, maybe even just uh, 
um, 70 years later by those that were in captivity, those who had seen Jerusalem burn to the ground, those who had seen their temple completely razed. And they would have said, wow, God is telling us what he's going to do. God is telling us that he is going to, re, they, he's going to repopulate Jerusalem. The implication is he's going to bring us back to Jerusalem. And he's not only going to bring us back to Jerusalem, but he's going to help us to rebuild the city. He's going to help us rebuild the temple. And we're going to be able to worship God once again in this place. As their Lord, their Redeemer, their Creator, God promises to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That's clear. But most significantly, God names here the very man who will be instrumental in that return and rebuilding. That, name, that man's name is found in verse 28. And that man's name is Cyrus. We've mentioned his name several times. This is the name of the Persian king, King Cyrus, who would come to power in about five, around 538 B.C., and who basically defeated Babylon, and who in that first year, because he had a completely different uh, uh, foreign policy than the Babylonian kings, he basically began a process of returning all these captives back to the lands. And he came, according to Josephus, he came across this text in Isaiah. And when he saw his name mentioned there, he also responded by saying, I'm going to do that, because he was so amazed that his name was found in the book. And so he gave instructions for the temple to be rebuilt, and that is what took place. Ezra chapter 1, verse 1 to 4 records this. I had it's a pretty small font, but we've read it before, we studied it before. But there we see the promise that in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put in a writing saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor, at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with the free will offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. This is amazing. This is about as this is up, this is this is only this is up there, only secondary to the the fulfillment of prophecies regarding the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Just think about this. The, the first year of King Cyrus was in 538 BC. Do you remember when Isaiah was written? Isaiah was written in the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, approximately 740 to 680 BC. That's 150 years prior to these events happening. God foretold it. This show, again, just once, once again, is evidence or confirmation that God is the true God. He's the only God. He's the living God. He is the supreme God. There is none that can compare with him. There's nobody else. He is in control of all human history. He can tell the future. He orchestrates, ordains events for the fulfillment of his promises. And as the people of God, they can count on his word for his fulfillment because he's done it time and time and time and time again and again and again and again. That is our God. You can count on his word and you can trust in him. And that's true for you and for me today. 
So why do we turn to idols? Why do we do that? You and I, again, may not have uh, the ancestral worship in our homes. You might not have no gold statue. You might not have any piece of wood, a fertility cult idol in your, in your house. You may not actually have a, a piece of stone that you call your God in your home. But all of us know the experience because we are sinners. We know what it is to put someone else or something else before God. We are committing idolatry when we, when we face a trial and the first person we go to with our trial is somebody else besides God. We go to our spouse. We go to our boss. We go to somebody else. But then we don't go to God. We go to our friends. But we don't go to God. We're putting someone else above God when we do that. When we, when we face with uh, trials and with difficulties and we look to something else, like our possessions, our strength, our wisdom, instead of looking in dependence upon God, that is idolatry of self. When, we, when you think about this afternoon and what's going to give you the greatest joy, and you're not thinking about enjoying the things that God has given you, but you're simply just thinking about enjoying the things. That is idolatry. When you think about what gives you the greatest satisfaction in this world today, what gives you the most greatest joy in this, in this world, in your daily data activity, and if you think that it's your job or it's something else that you do, your school, or it's a hobby, it's not God himself that is idolatry. And we're all guilty of this from time to time. We are all sinners. And we are robbing God of his glory. We do not worship him as he ought. We attribute to him that he is second to all these other things that we put above him. But God has revealed in his word that he is God. He alone is God. He is our God. He's our king. He's our Lord. And we are his servants. We are his people. And so when we, and so as his people, let us turn away from all the things in our life that, we, that may become idols in us, for us. Let us rightly see them in relationship to God. And let us always learn to trust, to trust, to, to trust in God alone first. To find joy in God alone first. To find satisfaction in God alone first before anything or any persons in our lives so that God may receive all the glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for these truths. Lord, it's hard for us sometimes to admit the, uh, what are the idols of our lives, the, the things that we find great joy in, great pride in, great satisfaction in, and we don't really want to give them up. But Lord, help us to see that the things that we even put before you in this world are all from you. And many of the things that are good are from you. Lord, that even in them, you give it to us so that we might learn to depend upon you that all good things are from you.
that we might learn to worship you, to praise you, to find joy and satisfaction in you, to turn to you when we are hurting and when we're in need and when we're sorrowful and when we're anxious. Because you are God. There's no other one besides you. No, but let, help us, Lord, to let nothing else replace you as God in our lives. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.